Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at New City Church and instructor in New Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and our dean of students, and Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean here on campus. And we're going to begin uh, the first in our series on reading guides to biblical books, and we're going to start, uh, as they say, at the beginning, or as Maria says in Sound of Music. We're going to start at the beginning at the well-known book of Bereshit, otherwise known as Genesis. The first book in the Bible, and the book that really sets the tone, sets the stage, uh, not just canonically in that it's first, not just literarily and that it, you know, it, it's you know, where the themes begin that we'll pick up throughout the rest of Scripture, but it really does set the whole table for the issues, the history, uh, the patterns and the major rubrics under which the rest of Scripture is going to be articulated to us. You, you can't get away from Genesis throughout the Bible, whether you're reading uh, uh, poetry or Pauline letters or the Gospels themselves. They're all cognizant of and reflective on uh, not only the issues and the themes, as we said, but the story that begins in Genesis. And so I want to start off with our professor of Old Testament here, Dr. Peter Lee, who is also the professor who teaches Pentateuch here at RTS. Peter Lee, if you're sitting down, you're giving someone an elevator, not, not an elevator pitch, but an elevator account of the book of Genesis. Where do you start? What's, what do you need to lead off with? What do you, what do you go through the door with? I, I guess if we're uh, going to start anywhere, it, it really helps to kind of look at the overall structure of the book, like we were talking about last week as it gives us sort of a reading guide and strategy to, uh, to know how to approach uh, the book as a whole. And, and, and although, you know, there are multiple different ways of looking at the overall organization of the book, I think generally there are two broad uh, consensus options that are out there. Uh, one is more of a thematic organization of Genesis 1 through 11. That's sort of the ancient primeval history. That's where you get these um, real old events, creation, the flood, uh, things of that nature. You've got the patriarchal narratives of Genesis chapter 12 to about chapter 36. That's all the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stuff. Then you've got the Joseph narratives from chapter 37 to the end of the book. I guess one way of looking at Genesis is kind of see it in that broad kind of structural point. And it works. It's actually a very nice way uh, of seeing the book. I, I do prefer, though, a different way of looking at the book of, of Genesis uh, that follows the, the phrase, these are the generations of. Uh, you start off with Genesis 1 as the introduction, the creation narrative, kind of the, the prologue uh, to the book. Uh, then starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, uh, you have the first, these are the generations of formula. And then if you look at Genesis as a whole, you find about 10 of them scattered uh, throughout uh, the book. They function as kind of like chapter headings. You know, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations uh, of Terah and, and so forth and such like. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice way to kind of group the book as well. I, I like that generational structure because uh, it does really reinforce what seems to be a real strong thematic message in the book of Genesis. Generations, descendants. 
You know, if you think about the significance of Genesis 3:15 and that promised seed of the woman, you're seeing now the development of that of that generational line, the seed of the woman in the conflict with the seed of the serpent, and the structure there of the generational formula really reinforces that that message. And you're kind of, if you read it that way, then you're kind of forced to follow that. Uh, that line of descent in Genesis 3.15. And so so I do like it because it's um, it's a little smaller, so it's a little bit more precise and refined. Uh, it also reinforces the message in a, in a way that the thematic organization really doesn't fit within that Genesis 3.15 context as much. That idea of the, of the generations um, is super helpful to me because it reminds us this isn't just supposed to be kind of like a modernist history. This isn't just sort of rank history, but this is this is a genealogy. It's even possible that this is related to what Paul is talking about when he's warning Timothy about speculative genealogies. He's not talking about people who are putting together, you know, bloodlines or something like that, but people who are developing creation myths and creation stories that are at odds with the teaching of Scripture, because we have a genealogy. We have a genealogy of the heavens and the earth. And this idea that it's a it's a kind of fast-moving genealogy, it's covering a lot of different information, but there there's moments where the author pauses and reflects on you know, salient details like the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then uh, you know, let's pause again and let's let's look at the development of this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and then, and then let's pause again and, and look at the Noah story, and then and then you, know, you you keep kind of moving along. Sometimes you're jumping, you know, huge swaths of time and 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 names, and sometimes you're slowing down, like in the case of Abraham's story, and then of course finally with Joseph, you get this real slowdown to the Joseph cycles where you really are just down in the details, the day-to-day experience of a particular person. But it helps me think about this not just as like a history, as it were, but this, you know, th- this particular thing, a genealogy where you're slowing down and you're taking um, inventory of events that are significant to the story of redemption that's going to unfold over the rest of Scripture. I think that's really important. It also has that... It, 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 it's important because it captures something that Genesis is trying to do. I like that. It's it's historical, but it's not bare history. It's not history for the sake of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's it's a narratival structure that God is saving a people. And this is the seed of the woman that he is protecting and guiding onto, uh, uh, you know, onto glory. And that then connects up with the New Testament. We find Matthew opens with a genealogy. Luke concludes his prologue. You know, his kind of before Jesus begins his public ministry, uh, we have Luke concluding that section with a genealogy, both of which seem to be indicating you know, Jesus is the true heir of Israel. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the true son of son of Adam, son of God. Uh, and that then pulling forward the story that begins here in Genesis, the family, the relationship, the generation that begins here in Genesis, carried on into the, the new covenant. Mm. Given everything you shared, how should we approach the text in terms of interpretation? That is, how literally should we treat Genesis in its accounts? I, the classic question is obviously, you know, Genesis 1, how would you then? I think that's important because so often the case that we get bogged down in those kinds of yeah. kinds of questions, like I think of uh, 
stumbling blocks, you know, mm-hmm. in the reading process, and one of them is that is that particular question: how li- how literal should we take this? G- given you shared that, it's not quite history in the sense that we think about history. So, uh, you know, we talked about this last week in terms of appreciating the genre and how the genre in turn affects our interpretation. Any guidance you might give there? Well, uh, well, I think it. Um, we have to ask uh, questions of the text that the text is trying to answer. Mm-hmm. I do think that's important. We do have modern questions uh, that are are very relevant and important, uh, especially when we talk about Genesis one and the creation narrative, and then just kind of the doctrine of creation as a whole, uh, and and God being creator, and uh, and a lot of the modern challenges, scientific challenges with the Human Genome Project, even you know, back to the questions of evolution and things of this nature. Uh, so we raise questions about the text with modern concerns, and I think that's valid, I think that's perfectly okay. But it does help for us to remember that these texts were written to uh, answer a particular question that was relevant to their day as well. The concern in Genesis 1 seems to me to, to emphasize, and it's actually not too different than the modern question, God is the one who created. It wasn't Marduk, it wasn't uh, Baal, it wasn't uh, uh, any other foreign god. Uh, It was Yahweh, God Elohim, Yahweh. He is the one who did the work of creation. For that reason, he's worthy to be praised. That seems to be important that we emphasize that fact that he did the work of creation. Now, the details of how he did it, I think we can discuss. But so frequently in the book of Psalms and the, and the prophets, I actually just preached on this this past Sunday, are constantly hailing and praising God for his work of creation. It seems to me if he didn't really create, that, that praise is kind of empty and void because we are praising him for something he didn't do. That can't be, I mean, that doesn't work. So regardless of the details of how specifically he did the work of creation, what seems to me as an undeniable, uncompromisable truth is that God created, and it seems to me in the ancient context of Israel's readers, that's what they were, uh, that's what they're getting out of Genesis 1, that uh, praise God, he created. Uh, for that reason, exile doesn't seem so bad now because God as creator can actually help us. You know, we're looking at, uh, you know, the Pentateuch was written for that generation of Israelites as they're about to enter into Canaan. You know, uh, the Canaanites were powerful. They had more advanced weapons of warfare. They were outnumbered the Israelites. Uh, uh, they had the Anakim, those giant figures. So how does uh, the Pentateuch affirm and, and encourage these Israelites to enter into the land by, by beginning with the fact that God is creator? Mm. You know, he is powerful. If God can create everything that you see here from nothing, then this is going to be a piece of cake. You don't have to worry about it, you see. And so the historical reality that God created does seem to me something we we have to affirm. That seems to me an uncompromisable biblical truth. In terms of the theories of Genesis 1 and the different interpretations, within certain realms of orthodoxy, I think we can discuss it. But that one fact, I would say, is is something we have to hold to. That's really good. He he created it, and he created it all is the other thing that's so significant. He didn't just create the sea or the land or the desert or the clouds, which would have been your assumption uh, as a Canaanite or as an Egyptian or a Mesopotamian is that God's jurisdiction is tied to specific regions or specific phenomenon. And it's interesting about the Bible. We We get the beginnings of a doctrine that we'll call the doctrine of aseity later, but that God is not contingent on any created thing, right? He's not... 
there's two there's a way in which the world is made up of two things god and everything that relates to god but god is not contingent on the world and that's a significant idea as a matter of fact i think the the, you know, the genesis includes also this wonderful story of abram abraham and it's his life is a, is is kind of can, can be chronicled as a, a person slowly learning that god is not just his local family deity it's not just he doesn't just have jurisdiction in the promised land but that he rules in egypt and pharaoh is under this god and abimelech is under this god and he, when this god says that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you he's the only god who can make that happen right and why is that you go back to genesis one because he's the one who made everything he's not a part of creation but he's he's in it and we've talked a little bit about genre too you know the genesis one and genesis two there's a genre shift that happens i would argue it's it's not apparently it's it's not in in incredibly explicit and yet in genesis one you do get general a general account of creation and then in genesis two suddenly starting at verse uh verse you know four b and five you get this changeover to uh, naturalistic processes happening. Um, you know, there's not there's not shrubs because there's no clouds and rain and that kind of thing. And it's interesting. I, I think there we talked about this last time when we were talking about when we were introducing this series. You've got to have your eyes attuned, your ear attuned to the genre and, and recognize that genre can be very general and symbolic. Like Psalm 104 is also a creation story, but it's very symbolic. And then you can have more naturalistic accounts that you have to kind of zero in on and say, okay, now, now what, what's actually, the details here, kind of the natural processes might be a little more relevant to interpretation than Psalm 104, where God rebukes the ocean and sets up the beach as a wall against it. Okay, that, that maybe we don't see that as a literalistic interpretation, but a more symbolic one. And, and I think that opens up Genesis 1 for a variety of interpretations, as you say, within orthodox you know, confessional boundaries. Uh, and we should remember that the readers of, of Genesis, the original readers, lived in a symbolic world. They had a set of ways of addressing things, ways of talking about things. I, I remember, um, you know, talking to my my kids. My kids always want, you know, they have all these kinds of questions, and they got into Galileo and 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 the whole. I think that this has been regarded as a myth now, but the the idea that the Catholic Church believed that the earth revolves around the sun, and where does that come from? It comes from you know, this interpretation of one of the Psalms where the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and all that kind of stuff. And you know, how silly is the Bible that it has this kind of pictorial view of the world? But of course, we do that. We have a different set of symbols, a different kind of mm-hmm. language game, but we say the sun rises, we say the sun sets, and we don't literally mean that it's rising and setting. It depends on perspective and conversational, the conversational moment and what kind of language is appropriate uh, for that uh, for that language. You say the seasons come and go. They don't come and go. That's all metaphorical language that we um, use and is part of our, uh, our, our cultural heritage. And when we approach Scripture, any book of Scripture, but especially a, a book like Genesis, we need to approach it projecting their symbols, their language and culture uh, uh, you know, it, a, as we try to understand what they're saying, what they're, what they're talking about. That's great, too. I mean, in Genesis 1, 
and we need to talk about the whole book too, of course, but Genesis 1 where the waters are divided to the waters above and the waters below. And you can imagine phenomenologically, so you're standing on the coast of the Mediterranean perhaps, and you see blue and then blue, right? You look down and you see blue, and you look up and you see blue, and it's obviously waters below and waters above. And it's interesting because it's not wrong. It's just a phenomenological metaphorical account. It wouldn't right? be appropriate for a science textbook. Right. But it's appropriate for this. But it is also appropriate to say that that's the reason why the sky is blue. Right. You know, they were, they were making a basic kind of non-scientific but observation, which is that water uh, filters out yellow and red light, you know. And so there's a reason why, you know, there's moisture and it makes for a blue sky. Now, I don't think that that's Moses planting a scientific Easter egg in Genesis 1, right, that we weren't discover until... The enlight- age of enlightenment, but it's it's just showing this is basic phenomenology, phenomenology, and and their classifications are different from ours, but it doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them a different type of a different sort. Yeah, that world of symbols that you mentioned, Tommy, I think is really important and helpful context. You know, uh, one of the common denominators in these ancient myths outside of the Bible is their hero god vanquishing the waters uh, that's, that generally is associated with chaos and death. You know, I think, you know, if you, w- with all drownings that happens in public beaches, I don't think it's, uh, you could see why they would associate uh, waters with chaos and death to a certain degree. And, and so I don't think it's accidental that you have, you know, the image of the Spirit of God right there at the very beginning, you know, hovering over this kind of formless and empty uh, watery mass and thus the work of creation is now forming this and, 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 and doing things like that. The, uh, the other thing is the other common theme in these ancient texts is how, you know, there's a battle. The, the, you know, the hero god vanquishes and defeats the chaos, watery uh, mass, uh, and then does the work of creation. But, you know, one of the things that biblical um, uh, students have noticed of Genesis 1 is the absence of any type of conflict. In fact... Uh, it's in day four, I'm sorry, in day five that you have references to the sea, sea creatures. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there is actually the same word used to describe like the, the, the leviathan, sort of a dragon type uh, feature. It's almost as if Genesis is trying to say the great threat of chaos in the ancient world, uh, the leviathan. Here's the sovereignty of God. He is so far superior to the leviathan. He created Leviathan. That's why there's no chaos. That's why there's no conflict in, in, in Genesis 1. It's sort of a way to reinforce the sheer sovereign power of God. No, no conflict. There is no war. Yeah. I, I suspect the ancient readers would have got that, you know, because they're, that's the environment that, that they're, they're reading this in. This is, this is Job's, Job's uh, or the apologetic that we find in Job, of, of the theodicy in Job is, you know, God arrives on the scene after this long debate of why is there suffering in the world, and God and God says, "Exhibit A, creation." Right. <laughs> Before I go any further, let me start with creation, and that includes the agents of chaos, Leviathan and Behemoth. You know, the agents of chaos and creation are His playthings, right? And that that's an outworking of this kind of Genesis one theology, which raises the question: Okay, so we've started and we've talked about Genesis one. You know, uh, as as an important text, it's a text of origins. That's always important for every belief system. What's what's the tone? What's the table that it's setting for the, that that the rest of the book is engaging with? 
How, how do we read Genesis in light of Genesis 1 or even in light of Genesis 1 and 2? These are just origin stories and now we can move on to the real stuff? Or what, what's, what's the point? How, how do we understand this in light of the Well, if we the follow the uh, generational theme, you know, it's interesting if you uh, look at that tenfold, uh, these are the generations of structure. Abraham and the Abrahamic narratives is right smack in the middle of the book of Genesis. And it's as if the the generational structure is building up to Abraham. Uh, and then you have the thematic line of Abraham kind of continuing on that generational line. So, you know, you have significant nodes, the seed of the woman, and then it kind of fast tracks through, you know, Cain and Abel, you know, Abel with martyrdom, you have now Seth, that goes to Noah, that goes to Terah, Abraham. It's interesting. So, so often I kind of think of Genesis as providing a cosmology, but it, it, and it does have that in the background, but it is in the background. The main point is elsewhere. It seems to be calling, calling a God calling a people to Himself, establishing presence on the earth through, through the Abraham story. Would you? How would y'all put it? Like, what is, what is, Genesis about? What is the conflict, the challenge, and the resolution? Kind of in, in narrative terms. Well, you do see that themes right there. I mean, the. Uh... You know, if, if Genesis 1 is dealing with the fact that we've got a formless and empty mass, and that what God is going to do is now provide form and then fill it. Form in the terms of, of, of land, a homeland, for his people to dwell in. The emptiness is a people who are now going to fill it. There you've got the theme of land and a homeland, right there in Genesis 1. And if you think about some of the big biblical theological themes in the Pentateuch, I mean, in Genesis, it's definitely this promised line of the woman, the people of God, um, a place for them to live in the land of Canaan. Those are two prominent themes that you see in Genesis into Exodus and so forth. I think there's something too about the, the, the creation is made, if you read it in its kind of ancient Near Eastern context, the creation is described in Genesis 1 as a house. It's a house, it's a temple, it's the palace of the Lord. And his image, one of the ways we know that, not just because there's an expanse over the top of it and everything, but at the center of it is put the image of the God who is the deity, and the God is told to fill the house, right? And you then, of course, because of the fall, have this great detour, the, the, they've been eject, the image has been ejected from the house. This can't hold, right? This, we've got to get back into the house. And not only that, we have to continue about the work of filling the house with images of God that glorify and reflect his glory back to him. And I think in a way, that's, that's kind of the story of the rest of the Bible, and it's definitely the story of the rest of Genesis, is how do we get back into the house? And, and, and the book continues on with the kind of heightening of the tension and that as things progress and the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Things get really bad so that everything is bad, Genesis 6. So God does a kind of redemptive reset where he not only chooses out a family, Noah, but he also uh, does a kind of recreation out of chaos of the earth and then but, but not, not turning back the effects of the fall. But what does he tell Noah and his family as they come out? Go fill the earth again. So you get that restatement of that plan. But it's really not until Abraham, right, where we get a glimpse of what it's going to look like to get back into the house of the Lord, to get back into the sanctuary. And that's in the promised land. And the promised land becomes now 
the staging ground. The hope of the promised land in Genesis is the staging ground out of which that redemptive program of filling the earth with the image of God and subduing it is going to find its locus. That's that 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 the hope of the promised land is is the is going to be the hope for how we can get this project back online. Amen. Right? And it, and it ends, that's the beauty, it's Genesis ends kind of like a good movie ends. They're in Egypt and they're knowing they shouldn't be there, they need to be. It's begging for a sequel, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's begging for a sequel. And that's how, I think, in a way, you know, you, there's a sense in which Genesis is the Old Testament for the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus is the New Testament, or even Exodus to Deuteronomy is the New Testament. Uh, they, 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 would, they would look back on the book of Genesis in the way that we New Testament Christians look back on the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the story that got us to where we are, but now God is about his work of redemption. And he's applying all of that theology from Genesis now into the lives of Israel, coming out of Egypt and returning in conquest into the land. And it's that way Greg Beale makes the point that Genesis 1 through 3 really is setting up the story of the rest of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, 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 that's a helpful way to see it. It's setting the agenda for everything that's going to come afterwards. Amen. The language of house is really helpful too. It's one that the New Testament, it's, it's, this is another trajectory that we can kind of pull into the New Testament uh, where, for example, Hebrews 3, Moses was a servant in the house. And so there is this, throughout the Old Testament, God has established his people. He's established his house. Uh, Solomon built for him an actual house. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so you see that kind of that theme continue. And yet there's an incompleteness to it. There this it's begging for a sequel there's these problems that are, are unresolved and the, as hebrews puts it the problem is you have the the, uh, the order in which the house is served is a servant order of, of mm. you know, it's a steward order and what you need is the son the son of god the son of adam the, the true seed you know, to Peter's point earlier, to come mm-hmm. into the house and take possession of it. And that mm-hmm. does not happen until Christ. He, he ascends and he sits at that throne, uh, the throne in the throne room in the house, so that we can be sons and daughters of the Lord. Yeah. Amen. That's great. I mean, it, it does, uh, and the house imagery, I think, is just really on point. Um, and in, in many ways, it sort of implies a really a doctrine of salvation. I mean, the house is a holy temple. Mm-hmm. Sinful man cannot dwell in the holy presence of God. If you just have a house that's holy without intrinsically now transforming the nature of man, you're going to have the same exile problem that you had with mm-hmm. Adam and Eve. It happened once. It's going to happen again. And sure enough, in the history of Israel, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally presumes the fact that God has got to do something in, in the people to make them holy. Yeah. That way, now there can actually be this bond, uh, this 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 uh, this communion between a holy God and His blessed people, and the people can't do this on their own. It requires for the Lord to do this work uh, within them, and so that the, the housing imagery in this uh, really, I think, is on point because in, in built into that. Is this idea of, of the work of salvation and redemption? Yeah, and, and to unpack that throughout, so that that sanctuary that is the garden becomes the land. It's made the land through the tabernacle and the temple, 
right? That, that's the land is both the sanctuary of the Lord and the center sanctuary is the tabernacle temple of the Lord. You know, to, to the apostles' befuddlement, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, I'm the temple now. I'm the sanctuary of God on earth. I'm the presence of God walking amongst his people. But then Jesus ascends to heaven, and we have Paul saying, and now you, Christians, who, who in case, okay, uh, enfold the, uh, the, the spirit of the Lord, you're now the temple. You're the sanctuary, both collectively and individually, which is remarkable. It's both when you gather together in his name and you individually are a temple of the living God. That's why it matters what you do to your body. You know, don't spray uh, you know, spray graffiti or, 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 or vandalize the temple of the Lord. Okay. And then what happens? We end up in the new heavens and new earth where now the whole earth is coincidental with the sanctuary of God, just as, just as was called or commanded, uh, mandated to uh, Adam and Eve that they were called to go build the earth and subdue it, turning it into the full, you know, the, the completing its, its, its role as temple. And so you really get that wonderful sanctuary theology that is launched back all the way back at Genesis 1. And it's kind of a wonderful turn of canonical providence, isn't it? That that's where Revelation ends. That you're back at the earth being filled as the sanctuary of God. And that's just, it's, it's, it's a beautiful envelope, right? That just ties up the whole story together um, in a really, really nice literary way for us biblical interpreters. Uh, you know, thinking about Genesis 1 as a narrative is just super, as a narrative on its own, but as the beginning of an overarching mm-hmm. you know, God's story, history, etc., is is super helpful, and it and it's it contrasts with a lot of those other ancient Near Eastern or yeah. uh, even you know Greco-Roman mythology, where the those stories they're not a part of anything. They're not they're not component parts of a larger meta narrative whole or a cosmic story, and Genesis. From the beginning, yeah. no pun intended, to, uh, every portion of it is guided by God. It's to your point about the sovereignty of God, Peter. There's no, there's nothing outside of control. The thing that's wrong with the world isn't that isn't something that God is in competition with or outside, but rather God from the beginning initiates, establishes, carries forward, perfects, mm-hmm. and concludes this overarching story. Uh, so that the Bible and the story it presents hangs together in a way that not, no other accounting of cosmology or history really can. And, and Genesis sets that tone. It sets that in motion. That's excellent. And it reminds me, too, then, of as we're reading this book as a whole now, so we want to bring it together. Let, let, let's, let's spend a minute talking about Okay, so what is the historical context of this book? Now, we, we don't get exactly when this was written. It's a part of the book of Moses. The New Testament authors and Jesus himself uh, uh, attribute this to Moses. Um, obviously, Moses could have received this in a variety of different ways, but if we go with our doctrine of organic inspiration, he probably had some probably stories available to him, oral traditions that under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's able to kind of bring together and affirm. Um, But if we hold to that view, which of course, even in evangelical circles now might be considered somewhat 
controversial in its conservativeness that Moses wrote that this it means that he, this book is written in light of an either either the present threat of Egypt or the past threat of Egypt and the coming issue related to going into the land okay right as you've mentioned already you go into Canaan we're going to have to recognize that God's not like Yom and he's not like Baal and he's not like Asherah he's he's a god overall um how does reading this in light of the Exodus and Conquest community, sometimes it's somewhere in between there, right? Somewhere between Exodus and, and Conquest, this is probably developed, maybe right up, right before Exodus. How does that change the way that we read the book? You've touched on that one, dealing with gods in the land. Uh, any other thing we need to draw out? Let me put it this way. When you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy says, we've told you all of these things so that you will believe. You know, Moses basically says, Deuteronomy is the theology that you should get and glean out of Genesis through, I mean, he doesn't say this, of course, but Genesis through Numbers. You want a theological statement of it? That's Deuteronomy. What's the theology that, you know, this is significant for this conquest community as they're looking back, how does Genesis unpack for them the theology that they're going to need to serve the Lord? Well, it definitely affirms, you know, that God of Genesis, of the God of creation, is a God that is with them now. Uh, in other words, and you know, we, you know, a little bit more of a careful study would show that some of the imagery, vocabulary of Genesis 1 of that creation act is very similar to some of the redemptive work that God did that you see in the book of Exodus. Mm. So that, um, in other words, the God of creation is also the God of redemption. The God that was uh, there in the, the beginning creating is also the God that is with them in the wilderness. Mm. We have that imagery of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 hovering over the, the formlessness and the emptiness. And that word hover, as you know, is only shown, only appears in the Old Testament just one other time. Uh, and that is in Deuteronomy 32, where it describes the Spirit of God hovering over the Israelites as they are going through the no. Uh, the wilderness. In fact, I think the wilderness is described also as a as formless. It's the same Hebrew word in Genesis one two as it's described the wilderness in um, uh, Deuteronomy thirty two. So that doesn't seem to me accidental. That seems to be very conscious that you know for the Israelites, you know, here's the God of creation from nothing. This is the same God who is actually redeeming us and preserving us. He is the same God who pulled us out of Egypt. He is the God who's preserving us and saving us now as we are going through the wilderness. Mm. This is a God that's going to be with us now as we, uh, as he uh, affirms and fulfills his covenant promise mm -hmm. uh, to Abraham, our forefather, by allowing us to enter into uh, the land. I don't think it's accidental for that reason that, you know, our doctrine of salvation at times is described using creation language. Uh, mm -hmm. Salvation is... A new creational act. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I just preached through Galatians, and, and, and uh, I think in Paul in chapter six, verse um, fourteen, it's where he says, "You know, circumcision is nothing; non-circumcision is nothing. But what matters is new creation." Right. Mm -hmm. You know, here's this uh, book that's really affirming justification by faith alone, but he ends by saying, "We are a new creation." Mm -hmm. I think another angle on that same point could be the language of, of kingdom and, and and Israel's place in the universe. You know, Scott, you're asking, like, 
how should Israel be thinking about themselves as they go into the into the land? Well, they're they're not serving some local deity. There, this is not some spat between one god and another god. This is a this is redemption on a cosmic scale. This God choosing a king for Himself. And I look back to the Abraham narrative, just the call of Abraham. You know, God in, in the curse of Babel spreads the nations. It was one nation, but God divides them in, into many tongues and many places and puts them all over the the earth. But then the problem with that, of course, that needs to be addressed is where will God dwell? Where will God God's house be, God's outpost? And Abraham then kind of chosen as the seed of his kingdom, his nation, that, that he, he so he will have a place on the earth. Um, Israel can be reminded of that as they're going into the land, as they're conquering, uh, as they're claiming the place of God for the people of God, that this is not some series of unfortunate events, but it <laughs> is a, an yeah. overarching part of creator God's plan for yeah. the salvation of the yeah. world. The creator God is the creator king who dwells with so. It's kind of like a kingdom prologue or something. <laughs> something like that, indeed. The citing uh, the book by Meredith Klein, Peter's, Peter's Professor, Kingdom Prologue. It's an excellent book. You know, it's interesting, too, because it's not... It's, it's, it's a theodicy for God, explaining who God is and what he's doing in the world. And it's, it's also interesting if you read it in that kind of Egyptian exodus conquest context, uh, you know, reading through the book with an ear for what is this telling this exodus community? You know, and you already highlighted, Peter, you know, the God who creates the world in this way and does a flood in this way could do the Red Sea, could do the, could do the plagues. It's interesting too, though, you know, when you think about the things that Moses selects out, the, the salient points that he selects out to tell us, like, why does he tell us that it's a snake in the garden, right? Well, is it possible? I mean, he could have just said one of the beasts or something like that. Or he could, just, could have just said the deceiver, right? Or something along those lines. But why, why, why unpack all the snake stuff? I mean, and, and why explain to us why snakes crawl on their bellies? Is, is that important for us to know? We don't get an, an etiology for the other animals. Or is it because of the, you know, the kind of, you know, primary role and symbol that the snake is for the nation of Egypt, right? I mean, this is what would have been on every pharaoh's crown. This, this is a, a symbol for the Nile. And he's saying the snake's been a problem for a while, right? Or, 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 or why, you know, why spend all of this time on Esau if you're not going to be passing through the lands of Edom? Right and describing how we have a complicated relationship with these people, they're brothers, but you got to understand it's complicated. It's right, it's awkward. it's awkward. It's an awkward family reunion. <laughs> yeah, or I think about even Cain and Abel. You know, he 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 just he could just tell us that Cain and Abel offer two different kinds of sacrifices. You know, Cain's was uh, a kind of uh, you know it was just some of his stuff, and Abel's was the first and the best of his stuff. You know, that seems to be the difference between the two sacrifices. But he he points out to us that that. Cain was a farmer, and he was doing vegetation, and Abel was a shepherd, right? And if the story of the Exodus is true, then you have this nation of people primarily known as shepherds. They even call their kings shepherds uh, throughout the Bible, and they're made to act and to operate in a land that's primarily known for farming, the Nile Delta and that region. You know, is he saying, hey, you know, the farmers have been oppressing us for a long time? 
again, you know, just just reading it in light of that Exodus conquest context, it's nested so well in kind of an Egyptian backdrop in a way that it's not if it's if this is written, for instance, at the time of the exile in a Mesopotamian backdrop. It's just it's just a different set of things you think that he would be refuting. But there's a place where I think the the uh, the themes and the metaphors that show up in the book really do speak again to its mosaic authorship at the time of the Exodus and the conquest in a really important, significant way. This is this is very practical news you can use for, for the Exodus community, right? They, they can apply this stuff into their daily lives. It's not hard to think about how to do that. That's a good point. I mean, uh, I don't know if we have this tendency, you know, to read it in light of Israel, help us to see that Genesis was written to inform them, we, we tend to maybe read it the other way around, you know, uh, uh, Genesis to help us understand Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I wonder if perhaps maybe you could do it the other way around. Yeah, right. In light of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, why is Genesis tell us right. what it tells right. us? Yeah. You know, there's, uh, it's, it, 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 for me, particularly someone who's raised in a Christian setting, not that I was always a faithful you know, reader of scripture, but I was raised hearing these stories. It's helpful for me to go back and read them in context. And that's not to take away at all from the general canonical use of the text. Mm-hmm. It's obviously speaking to a generation, not just in the Exodus and the conquest, but far beyond it. There, there, there's a sense in which we can say these are, of course, eternal truths. They don't only make sense to Moses in his... Uh, interlocutors, but this is for the covenant community, and so you can you can locate the text within history, while also not taking away from the fact that, of course, it speaks beyond that that community. By the way, as Moses tells us himself, you know, remember this this whole thing culminates with the Sinai covenant and Israel at Sinai, and then you know, forty years later in Moab. Moses says, oh, that Sinaitic covenant that was given to your parents, that was for you. He even tells us of the multi-generational realities. These are not just for the immediate hearers, the original audience, as it were, but this is meant to be multi-generational. So that you know, Isaiah could say, those words that Moses spoke, they're for you. And Jesus could say, those words that Moses spoke, they're for you. You know, and we can do the same thing. So um, we should do that as we're sitting down with the book. This very long and fascinating text, uh, the beginning of a saga. It has the feeling of the beginning of a saga, and it's rich and varied. And as we've already discussed before we started recording, we could talk about this all day long. And maybe someday we'll come back and do a series on Genesis. But it's been wonderful to sit down with you brothers and chat through this. I hope that this has been a benefit to you listening at home. And we look forward to coming back together and sitting down and talking about the next book in this series on reading guides. If you've got a question that you'd like to post to us, or if you'd like to suggest a book that you're afraid we may or may not uh, cover, then let me encourage you to go to the show notes and there'll be a link there where you can post a question or recommend a book for us to cover in a future episode. Uh, You can also learn more about RTS Washington there if you go to www.rts.edu forward slash Washington. We'd love to start a conversation with you about how you could take more classes and be a part of this community. So thank you all for being here this week. We look forward to being again together next week. Until then, take care.
Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of new, st new students. It I almost got through. Yeah, I almost got going through. Like that. No, no, keep going. That's great. And Tommy, professor and of new students. <laughs> Tommy Keene, professor of new students. That's there. It's there. It's all there is now. <laughs> and Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and dean of academics. Why can't I get this out? <laughs> Academic dean. And Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean here on campus.